right. Well, good morning, everyone. Today is a great day. Um, Jesus is alive, but also the Eagles are in the Super Bowl. Um, it's going to be a good day. I know, I know it is. I've been praying about this. Um, always a, a privilege to bring us God's Word, uh, if, especially if you're joining us for the first time and it's, it's your first week here at Citizens. Really want to welcome you. Um, I know uh, sometimes Sundays can be a little bit overwhelming, but um, we would love to get to know you better, uh, help you get plugged into our community. And so usually myself and some of our staff members were um, hanging out around the info table. So if you have any questions about the church, uh, please come find us then. Okay, uh, today uh, we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 to 10. If you have your Bibles uh, or you're following along on an app, if you want to go there, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This is the reading of God's Word. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Uh, would you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that our church is in a series right now called The Liturgical Life. And the underlying behind this series is that we are all liturgical people. We are people who organize our lives around various practices and rhythms that tell a story about who we are and what matters to us. Everyone says they believe something, but you will know what a person really believes about God, themselves, and the world by observing that person's way of life. Uh, many of you may have heard the story of a famous French acrobat named Charles Blondin. Uh, he was an acrobat in the 1800s, and he was most famous for walking on a tightrope over Niagara Falls uh, from the U.S. to Canada and back, and he was a master at his craft. Um, he would, you know, do it on stilts. He would bike across the tightrope. I think he carried a stove across the tightrope once, and he would draw these huge crowds and every time uh, he was like, do you believe I can do this? And everyone was like, yes, you are the man, right? You can do this. And he would keep upping the ante. And probably his most impressive feat uh, was walking across the tightrope, blindfolded, pushing a wheelbarrow. Okay, I don't even know where he came up with this stuff. Okay, but he's walking across the tightrope, pushing a wheelbarrow, walks there and back. And people are just losing their minds. They're going crazy. And he's like, do you believe... 
I can do it again. And everyone's like, yes. He's like, do you believe I can get, put someone in the wheelbarrow and do it? And everyone's like, absolutely, you are the man. And he's like, who's going to volunteer to be in the wheelbarrow? Silence. We all have a professed theology. Everyone says they believe something to be true. We believe God is our provider. We believe God is good. He is faithful. But we all have a functional theology as well. We have, a, we have a way that we organize our lives. We have a theology that actually guides the decisions we make every day. And today, the practice we're talking about is the practice of generosity. And let me say this. There are few things that will reveal what we truly believe about God than our relationship with our money. Over the years, many people have given their take about what is the biggest threat to the church. Every generation, someone comes along and says, the church is under fire, and they always have a theory as to what they believe to be the greatest threat is to the church. Some have said it was politics. Some have said it's liberalism or secularism. More recently, some have said it's issues around sexuality and gender. But I would argue that the greatest threat to the church has always been and still is the worship of money. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money and its dangers. 1 Timothy 6 says money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we all know that nothing will destroy a friendship, a marriage, a community in an instant than money can. Nothing will give us a greater sense of false security than money can. Nothing will change a person or corrupt an organization like money can. Nothing can incite a war, tyranny, injustice like money can. And obviously, we're not saying that money itself is bad, but it's what Jesus often referred to as the spirit of mammon, a spirit that places its trust in material wealth over God, a spirit that buys into the lie that money, not God, is the ultimate source of our security, significance, meaning, identity, and purpose in this life. And Jesus is clear. In his gospel, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And what was true in Jesus' day, I would say, is still true in our day. That mammon, this insatiable desire to possess more, more wealth, more power, more status, more resources has enslaved our collective imaginations. You see, the story of mammon is a story of scarcity. Scarcity is a term used a lot in the economics world, and it's this idea that there's a fixed amount of resources in the world. Time, money, land, power, there's limited resources. And once those resources are, are gone, they're gone forever. And so we all have to fight for a slice of the pie, because if someone else takes that slice, there's nothing in it for us. Right? And it's this idea that there's never going to be enough to meet all of our needs and desires. So all of life becomes a race to hoard as much money, as much wealth, as much status and power as possible. It's this life of constantly grasping for more. And the spirit of mammon is so pervasive and it's so powerful that even though all of us sitting in this room are absolutely wealthier than the majority of the world, Many of us still genuinely believe we don't have enough. And we live every day in this story, this story that says we need more. 
We need more money to be happy. So the question is, is there a practice that can break the spirit of mammon that has so deeply embedded itself into our way of being? And there is. It's the practice of generosity. In generosity, we declare a different story. Not of scarcity, but of abundance. Of a God who has limitless resources and will supply all of our needs. A God in whom there is always enough. Today we're looking at the familiar story in Luke 19. The story is about a man named Zacchaeus uh, who encounters the love of Jesus and as a result has his entire paradigm of life turned upside down from a mindset of scarcity to one of abundance. Right? right out of the gate we read that Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man and he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. Okay, So he's very wealthy. I don't know if you remember Chris Rock had that one bit where he says there's a huge difference between people who are rich and people who are wealthy. He says Shaq is rich. But the man who signs Shaq's checks, he's wealthy, okay? Zacchaeus, very wealthy. Um, if just for a little bit of historical context, uh, back then, tax collectors, um, once Rome conquered this territory, uh, Roman government was taxing the Jews a ridiculous amount of money, and what they would do is they would recruit some of the Jews' own people. So they would recruit Jews to basically collect money from their people, and the agreement was, okay, you're going to collect X amount for us, but anything else you want to collect on top, that's yours. You can keep it. So they were basically training these Jews to extort their own people. It was this massive pyramid scheme. They would extort their own people, give a percentage to the person up top, and who's up top? The chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Okay, so we're talking about someone who was considered the worst of the worst, someone who was considered the scum of society, someone who had betrayed his nation, his God, his people. Um, some scholars say the closest analogy to the way tax collectors were viewed during Jesus' time would be the way our society views drug lords and sex traffickers and pimps. And really, tax collectors were the embodiment of the spirit of mammon. They were people willing to do anything to anyone if it meant more money for them. Well, you have to ask when you read this story, because it's, it's so familiar that we don't, up, we don't understand how ridiculous the story is, what would possess a man like this, who has all the wealth and power in the entire world to run and climb a tree? Okay, we read that uh, he was a little man, okay? in, in other terms, he was a short king. And um, basically, I mean, we know he was short, and maybe he just couldn't see over the crowd, but honestly, like, even if you were short, what would possess a man as rich and powerful as Zacchaeus to do something so undignified, so shameful, so childlike? There really is only one explanation. He was desperate. Here's a man who's built a fortune for himself, who's at the top of the pyramid chain, and all of his wealth and power has amounted to this image. A sad, lonely man, outcasted by his own people, sitting out of breath on top of a sycamore tree. This is what living in a world of scarcity looks like. I don't know if many of you have seen, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix. I mean, there's so many documentaries about Bernie Madoff, um, also known as the monster of Wall Street. And uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he basically orchestrated one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in Wall Street history. And you watch this documentary and it just paints a picture of a man who's obsessed with more. And he can't stop. 
and he's, his entire life is grasping for more. And throughout the movie, you see these images during his death, uh, like deposition, and it's really sad because this man who at one point wore the most expensive clothes, lived a luxurious lifestyle, who it seemed like the world was his oyster, looks like a shell of himself in his deposition. Sad, lonely, outcasted by his own people. And I imagine this is what Zacchaeus looks like, shamelessly sitting on top of this tree, just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And to his surprise, Jesus is walking by, and he looks up and he calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And that moment is so profound because Zacchaeus is there looking for Jesus and he doesn't realize that Jesus is looking for him. I'm sure many of you are here today because you're looking for Jesus. You're looking for something. You're looking for some hope. You're not even sure what you're looking for. And let me just tell you, if this story tells us anything, Jesus is already looking for you. He has been looking for you. And at this moment, Jesus calls him by name, and you have to imagine the entire crowd who's walking with Jesus turns and looks up. You gotta imagine how exposing that is for Zacchaeus. Everyone is looking up at him. He probably feels naked. He probably feels insecure, and you can almost hear a pin drop in that moment because people are like, what is Jesus gonna say to this man who has taken so much from us and become wealthy at our expense? What is he gonna say? Is he gonna rebuke him? Is he going to tell him everything that he's done wrong? Is he going to expose him for the world to see? But to their surprise, you know what Jesus says? He says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down because I want to stay at your house today. And so we read that Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And I know a lot of times when this passage is preached, preachers often will jump to Zacchaeus' generosity, right? Because at the end of the story, uh, he says, I'm going to you know, sell half of my possessions. I'm going to give it to the poor. I'm going to repay everyone I've cheated 400%. But this passage is not about the generosity of Zacchaeus. It's about the generosity of Jesus. Everything Zacchaeus does is simply in response to the unthinkable generosity he's been shown in that moment. This man who has been living in a scarcity mindset his entire life grasping, hoarding, exploiting, now steps into a completely different story, a story of abundance. Zacchaeus giving away his money at the end is not him being holier than thou. It's the only logical response in his mind to the abundant goodness of God invading his life. A few months ago, my five-year-old son, Jack, got invited to a birthday party, and they had a piñata there, and I always get nervous when there's a piñata, because um, these kids, they have like pent-up anger or something, but um, uh, they're, they're taking turns hitting the piñata, and one of the kids finally hit it hard enough where there was like just a little bit, it broke just a little bit at the seams, and just a little bit of candy came out, and you see my son like catapulting in the air, um, diving at the candy, and you know, my, if you know my son, he, he's a unit, so everyone gets out of the way when he catapults in the air. And, he gets out of the way, and he grabs just everything on the ground, and he stands up, and he's like, I got it. And it's crazy because in that moment, like, I'm not even looking at him because I'm looking at the piñata, and the seam starts to tear even more. And it's like in slow motion. He's like, I got it, and then he looks up, and it's like the third heavens open up because this 
avalanche of candy falls out, and he just opens his hand, and he doesn't even know what to do with himself. This is what happens when we experience the abundant generosity of God. When we experience the incomprehensible goodness of God that pursues us, a, a goodness who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, everything we try to hold on to so tightly in this life feels trivial. It almost feels pointless. I think about the Apostle Paul who had absolutely everything. He had the wealth, he had the status, he had the pedigree, he had the influence, and then he lost it all. But as he's sitting in a prison cell with absolutely nothing, somehow he's able to say, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He says, I don't need anything anymore. We don't open our hands in generosity so that we can get something in return. We open our hands because we can't contain all that we've received and continue to receive in Christ. And this is what living in the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like living with open hands in the reality of God's abundance. And let me say this, there is nothing that will attract people more to the gospel of Jesus than a community marked by generosity. If I was not a Christian and I walked into a community and I saw people praying and reading the Bible, I would say there are a lot of holy people here, a lot of religious people, but I might still say, not for me. If I walk into a community and I see people literally giving everything they have for one another, their hard-earned money, their time, their resources and talents, that's when I say, what do they have? What is it that these people see that I'm not seeing? Give me what they have. When you read about the early church in Acts 4, it was their generosity that drew people to Jesus. It says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. If the spirit of mammon has always been and still is the biggest threat to the church, then the practice of generosity has always been and still is the biggest mark of the church. Now, I always get nervous when I talk about money and when I talk about generosity, okay, because I know it brings up a lot of baggage for us. I grew up in a church where every week in the bulletin, they would print the names of the people, of the highest givers in the congregation every week, okay? And how much offering you gave was a measure of your devotion, okay? And they had like, you know, it was like summa cum laude givers and then magna cum laude givers. They had like the really highest givers, right? I know that some of us grew up in churches where we were told that the more you gave, the more God would increase your wealth. We've all seen televangelists, right, where God is almost like a financial manager and he takes your hundred dollars, he invests it in stocks and he brings you back a thousand. And I know like a lot of us are traumatized by that image of God and, and none of it was biblical. And so let me just give us, just a, dispel a few myths about generosity, okay? The first myth is that our generosity is what moves the hand of God. That our generosity, that, the more we, that this idea that the more we give to God and others, the more God will bless us. And you might think, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that theology. But I want you to ask yourself this. 
When was the last, you know, think about the last time you did something for, for another person or you gave someone an extravagant gift and they didn't return the favor. How did that make you feel? And a lot of times we don't even realize we're expecting something in return for our generosity until we don't get it. And we do the same thing to God. We say, okay, I, I mean, I know this isn't, you know, I know this doesn't move your hand, God, but just letting you know, here's $100, right? Here's my time and service. And we don't even realize that we expect something in return, but we know it because when things happen in our lives, when we go through seasons of difficulty, or when we see someone else who hasn't been generous succeed, a lot of times our mindset is, what the heck, God? You know how much I gave you? You know how many years of my life I gave to the church? You know how much I've given to people in need, and this is what I get in return? We often don't realize our giving to God comes with strings attached until something happens in our lives and we start resenting him. And let me just tell you this. There have been many seasons in my life when I feel like I've given God a lot and I've given people a lot and God has provided for me tenfold. But conversely, there have been many seasons in my life where I feel like I've been super stingy with my finances, time, and resources, and God has still blessed me. God's grace is not contingent upon our giving. A detail that I think is so key in this story is that Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to sell his possessions and give it to the poor before he invites him over to his house. He invites himself over first, and then Zacchaeus. The, and then Zacchaeus gives everything he has and repays those he cheated 400%. What Zacchaeus does is simply a response. Jesus' grace wasn't contingent upon Zacchaeus' giving. We cannot earn the love of God or manipulate his grace. His grace flows regardless of how much or how little we give. So I want to make that clear. The second myth is that God needs our money. He doesn't in case you were wondering. No matter what any pastor tells you, God doesn't need us to build his kingdom. The Bible says God will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, and that's with or without us. A call to generosity is not a call to build God's kingdom. It's a call to break the spirit of mammon that's living in us. It's to leave our world of scarcity and enter a world of abundance. God will be fine with or without us, but generosity is an invitation for us to join God in the work that he's doing. It's an invitation. Okay, so that's the second misconception. And finally, the third myth is that generosity is something you should do only when you're wealthy. Now, Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man, but I think it's very intentional that only two chapters later, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 21, we get the story of the widow's offering. And in the scene, you have the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, and this widow walks up and just puts in two very small copper coins. And looking at her, Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Generosity is not an amount. It's a posture of the heart. It's a heart that says, when I have much, how can I give? And when I have little, how can I give? Because in you, I have everything I need. 
A lot of us say, when I have more time, then I'll serve. When I make more money, then I'll give. But we know that never happens. If we aren't generous when we have nothing, we will not be generous when we have everything. And as a pastor, what I have found consistently to be true is that it's often those who seemingly have the least to give who are the most generous. Over and over again, I see people who I'm like, how do you have any time? Like, aren't you unemployed right now? And yet they're the most generous. When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was someone who never grasped. He only gave. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being made in human likeness. And even on earth, Jesus had very little. He was a homeless nomad. And yet over and over again in his story, you see Jesus constantly pour out his time energy, resources, power, never hoarding it for himself. And in his final moments, after he had given everything away, Jesus gave the only thing left to give, his life. From the outside looking in, the cross seemed like such a waste of a life. A man who left this world with nothing. And yet it was this man who changed the world forever. You know, these days I'm starting to go to a lot more funerals, which is sad, because for a while it was all weddings and all first birthday parties, and I'm starting to go to more funerals. You know what I find consistent across every funeral I go to? When you die, nobody talks about how much money you made. Nobody talks about how big your house is, how big your retirement was. You know what they talk about? How much you gave away. The only thing we have left when we die is what we've given away. Generosity is a posture that says, whether I have plenty or little, I want to leave this earth saying I gave it all away because I know that I have been given immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine in Christ Jesus. So how do we practice generosity? Because like all the other practices, generosity is a muscle. It's a habit that we have to cultivate in our lives. And it's very hard because we're living in a culture right now where the spirit of mammon is everywhere. The spirit of mammon is discipling us to grasp and to hoard, discipling us into a constant state, a perpetual state of dissatisfaction and discontentment. And generosity is going to look different for everyone depending on your season of life. But more than anything, not, I'm not trying to give us rules. I'm trying to give us a vision for what our life could look like, of what living with open hands might look like, where we move through life not asking, what more can I get for myself? Like, how else can I get something from this person? And we move through life asking, what more can I give away? Is there something I can give away? Well, the first step is that we have to learn to be free from our attachment to money. I mean, we can't even start to give until we take the chains off. You know, I know that sometimes the time in our service where we give our tithes and offering, that can almost seem like a throwaway time. Why we set aside time in our service each week to give our tithes and offerings is, you know, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about that time, about what tithing is and why we do it. 
right? You see this principle throughout the Old Testament, but the New Testament doesn't give any specific guidelines for tithing, so why do we do it? Why do Christians do this really weird thing of taking a chunk of their money, right, a chunk of their income, historically it's been 10%, and just give it away? That's a lot of money. And I want to make it very clear, it's not the tithe itself that is the end goal. Tithing is like a layup drill. Okay, if you've ever played sports or ever played basketball and you do layup drills, right, it's something you do over and over again so that in-game your muscle memory kicks in. And so it changes, like all of a sudden it's like you know what to do in that moment because you've done it over and over again. When we tithe, what we are doing is we are practicing trusting in God and living in God's abundance, not so that it ends with the tithe, it's so that we can become generous people everywhere we are. We're practicing what it looks like to live in a different story. Everything we do here on Sunday is like rehearsal for the real world. Everything we do here is basically us practicing, knowing that when we go out there in the real world, we're going to get force-fed a different kind of story, right? Why do we confess our sins each week? It's not so that we can come to church and confess our sins once a week. It's to practice in this world where everyone says you have to wear a mask and you have to be someone you're not to be loved and accepted. For that one moment each week, we're practicing what it feels like to be fully known and fully loved. That for once you can say, I can bear my entire soul and I can tell God the worst parts about me and he still loves me. And the goal is for us to leave this place and to walk around like we're people who are fully known and fully loved. Why do we sing songs of praise every week? Why do we gather around the word of God every week? Because we're resisting the lies that were fed by the world. We're resisting all the different narratives of the world. And we're coming here and we're declaring that the most important voice in our lives is the voice of God. And the goal is for us to leave this place, to have this word continue to resonate in our hearts, to have the songs continue to resonate in our hearts, so that when our parent says that one thing, when our sibling says that one thing, when our coworker or boss says that one thing, we say, no, I am not what you say I am. I am who God says I am. So why do we tithe? We tithe to resist the narrative that says we won't have enough if we give this away. It's to free our attachment to money. And as we do this communally each week, God is slowly loosening our grip and he's breaking the power of mammon in our lives. And if you're new to this practice, you don't have to be legalistic about it. Start small, right? Again, it's not the amount. It's the posture of the heart that says, everything I have is yours anyway. And so I trust my heavenly father to provide for my needs. And as you start to open your hands and as you start to see your money, time, and talents as something to give away, not to hoard, hoard for yourself, I guarantee you God will begin to open your eyes to see people all around you who are in need, to see causes all around you you could serve, where like your heart will just start to break and you will start to ask, how, how can I use my money? How can I use my resources? Is there anything I can do to give to this person in need? It changes our mindset. It changes the way we move through the world. And as you begin to live in this new world of abundance, I guarantee you, you will see the promises of God unlocked in your life. 
Because when you start to give away your money, time, and talents, you're going to need to start depending on God because sometimes it's going to hurt. And sometimes you're going to say, oh my gosh, I don't know if I made the right decision. But let me just tell you, living in dependence on God is the best possible place to be because you will see God provide for you in ways you could not even imagine. And the beauty of the practice of generosity is that it's not just us who gets transformed. Everyone around you gets transformed as well. When we start to give ourselves away, we now become the very vehicles of God's provision in someone else's life. And it's this beautiful cycle where God releases our grip on our material wealth and possessions and then allows us to experience his provision through the generosity of others. Um, if you've ever done premarital counseling with me, I always talk about this, the allegory of the long spoons. Okay, I don't know if you've heard this, but basically it's, a, it's an old Jewish allegory and a man goes up to God and a man says, God, I, I want to know what heaven and hell are like. And God says, okay. And he takes him to two doors. And he says, let me show you hell. And he opens the door and the man walks through the door. And what he sees is a, is a beautiful banquet table full of food. And he sees people sitting around that banquet table. And he realizes um, that everyone around the table is emaciated. And they're like really unhappy looking. And he's like, what's going on? There's so, much, there's so much food here. And he realizes that the spoons are ridiculously long. And they can get the spoon into the food and into the stews, but the spoons are longer than their arms, so they can't get it into their mouth. And it's just this like, and, and the guy is like, that looks miserable to be so close to that feast and not be able to feed yourself. And he says, take me out of this place. He leaves the room. So what's heaven like? God opens the door and he walks through the door. It's the same exact table, same exact meal, huge stews and beautiful, um, like a beautiful feast. But everyone in heaven, for some reason, is really well fed. They're laughing. They're having a great time. And he's like, what's going on? Because I'm looking and the spoons are along here too. And he's, God is like, look closely. And he realizes that everyone takes a spoon and they're serving each other. And they're reaching across the table and everyone's serving each other. And somehow in heaven, because people are sharing and people are understand what generosity looks like, nobody is not fed. Everyone is well fed. When a community begins to embody generosity, everyone's needs get taken care of. A friend this week reminded me that the kingdom of God is like leaven. And the idea is that though we don't always see the fruits of our small acts of generosity, you know, when we offer to babysit for someone, when we send a Venmo because we know someone's struggling, when we send them a DoorDash gift card because we know they have a lot on their plate, sometimes you're like, in the grand scheme of things, does that do anything? But like leaven that goes like hidden in the dough for a long time, that works itself, it works itself throughout the dough and all of a sudden it's worked itself through, throughout the entire dough. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And I can tell you that this has been absolutely my experience as being a part of this community. My kids have been such a recipient to the generosity of this community, so much so that I know that they will not be able to separate the love of Christ from the generosity of this church. I love that any time this school, Roybal, has a need, the first people they call is us. I love that. 
we can be a church where they say, hey, our families need to eat and we don't have food. Can the church help out? I love that when they have a student, a former student who died in a horrible, tragic accident, the first place they called to get, to get funds for a funeral was the church. What would it look like if everywhere we went, the church was known for our generosity? Friends, may we understand that nothing in this life is ours. And may we, like Jesus, learn to live in God's kingdom of abundance, giving our lives away for the sake of others. Let's pray. just want to give us a moment, as always, to allow the words uh, today to sink in. And I want, to ask our, I want us to ask ourselves, what is the lie that we've been telling ourselves that causes us to grasp and grip so tightly? to our money, to our possessions, to our time? What is the thing that's stopping us? And in this moment, I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to remind us of the abundant goodness and grace that he offers us. Ask him to open our hands to receive all that he is, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father above. Lord, we acknowledge that we are enslaved to our money, to our possessions. We are enslaved to the spirit of mammon. And God, we pray that this community would be a place where the spirit of mammon is broken. Where we open our hands we receive the grace you abundantly give us and we begin to give our lives away for the sake of others where we join you in your work of making all things new god we look around even just in our immediate proximity we see that there are so many needs many of us drive to this church every sunday and we drive through skid row and we see so many who do not have basic necessities we have people in our lives who are struggling 
There are currently thousands of people displaced because of the earthquake in Syria. God, we've been so blessed, but we know that we have not been blessed to keep it for ourselves and to hoard it. We've been blessed to be a blessing. You remind us that it is better to give than to receive, and I pray that we would begin to take on the posture of Jesus, who gave it all away, and in doing so found life. Help us to cling to the promise that those who lose their lives will find it. Lord, thank you for this poignant reminder for us. Would you open our eyes to see what you see, to see people as you see them? Would you open our hands? We love you. We thank you. We thank you for the abundant generosity that you've shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.